Welcome to the Buyer's Desk, an Infra podcast. Discover expert buying strategies, merchandising tips, and category management secrets. Dive into the latest spins insights and hear from independent natural food retailers on their strategies and best practices. We unravel the incredible stories behind the products directly from brand founders, makers, formulators, educators, and inventors. Get ready to explore the world of natural food retail. Hey folks, and thanks for joining us on another episode of The Buyer's Desk. I am Chris Sorensen, Promotions Program Manager. And I'm Angela Bozo, Director of Member Programs, and we are your hosts. And we are back, and today we are celebrating Black History Month with our theme, From Soil to Shelf, Black Voices in Farming. And if you think about the connection with this to to our industry, both through products, you know, we're seeing a big trend in BIPOC products coming out into the market. You know, on our first episode, we talked to Denise Woodard from Partake, and she talked about funding um, and working with Marcy Ventures and some of the experience that she had. Um, but then connecting it back to to farming, you know, it's one thing, you know, I saw this uh, an episode on uh, CNN of the uh, United Shades of America with W. Kamau Bell that went really far into some of the black farming history and things like that, looking at Black Farmers Network. Some of the statistics of knowing just back from 1920, there were over 925,000 black farms. And now today, just 35,000. And if you think of the acreage from from that time around 1910, there's 15 million acres of black owned farm and now only 4.7 million. So on this episode, we talked to some people that are in that industry and have some of that experience to be able to talk through some of the work that they're doing to create positive change within the egg space and within the brand space as well. So very interesting conversations today. Phenomenal. I, I mean, I, I think these are some of the my favorite interviews that, that I've had. But Angela, what were your thoughts? Well, I think I said this when we were chatting about the episode, but they were both just really expansive interviews. I mean, when we thought about even naming this episode, Black Voices in Farming, we certainly did an amazing job picking two guests that give us a, like this huge, expansive voice and overview and from really different perspectives as well. You know, this is our first episode where we're not going to include a member interview because we felt like both of these interviews were big and expansive and long and detailed. And I am really proud of feeling like we were highlighting voices within the Black farming community. And your tie-in's great, Chris. Awesome. Well, you also had a really great recording with Jim to kind of go over some of the, the similar topic. As always, Jim Olson, our resident spins expert here at Infra, uh, gives us not only a data-packed segment, I like learned a lot listening to him, and it wasn't just about brands this time. I believe he highlights the youngest Black farmer as part of the USDA registry, which is a fantastic story. And uh, yeah, really interested in his segment. But first, we're going to hear again from Denise at Partake Foods, a Black-owned and woman-led B Corp business that makes allergen-free cookies, grams, and pancake mixes. Hi, my name is Denise Woodard. I'm the founder and CEO of Partake Foods, and I'm here to celebrate Black History Month and Black-owned businesses in food and beverage. Partake is a Black-owned and women-led B Corp with a line of cookies, grams, and pancake and waffle mixes that are certified gluten-free, top nine allergen-free, vegan, and non-GMO. You can find us in 14,000 retailers nationwide, and we are a very proud Infra partner. Partake believes in good food for good, and we support nonprofits working to end food insecurity. 
Additionally, in 2020, I founded the Black Futures Fellowship, a 501c3 that matches HBCU students with paid internships at food and beverage companies. Visit partakefoods.com or Partake Foods on social media to learn more. Hello, I'm Jim Olson, SPIN's Senior Retail Insights Manager, here with a rundown of what's happening on the data side of the natural foods industry. The natural foods industry was born from a desire to eat food that was grown cleanly and ethically, supplied happily by American farmers. Today, farms are still the backbone of our industry and provide crops of a wide variety, though the variety of farmers is a bit lacking. As of 2023, only 1.4% of the 3 million U.S. farm owners were black, and those that have found a footing in the industry had to first overcome long odds rife with historical racial barriers to entry. As such, it is only fitting that SPINs and the buyer's desk honor those farmers who strive forward into personal success and their contributions to natural foods. First up is Avo Hemp, which started in 2012 with the twin goals of educating consumers on the health benefits of hemp seed, while also supporting the farmers who grow them. Avo Hemp now boasts a product line ranging from bars to oils to powder and more, all with hemp proudly sourced from the 40-acre cooperative, the first national black farmer co-op since Reconstruction, and who partner with more than 30 black and indigenous farmers across half a dozen states. Another strong partner, Infra, where Avo Hemp drives half of their total natural channel sales and where the brand saw a $24,000 bump in sales first the previous year. Next up, we have the delightfully named Num Num Sauce, a line of condiments helmed by Dr. Michael Lloyd based on an 80-year-old family recipe cooked up by his great-grandfather with ingredients sourced on two acres of farmland in Georgia. While not sold in Infra stores just yet, they have achieved top seller status within southern locations of Whole Foods. Finally, I wanted to end this piece highlighting someone not in Spins Data yet, but who certainly has the potential. Kendall Ray Johnson made history in 2022 when she became the youngest certified farmer in Georgia at the ripe old age of seven. An early childhood curiosity in planting and growing, quote, practically anything, first led to her own small garden at age four, then expanded to her entire backyard, and now exists as a grow culture, a source of fresh local produce, education classes, of course, led by Kendall herself and even subscription boxes full of her delicious yield. I wish her the brightest future as she carries on the legacy of all the black farmers that came before and inspires a generation yet to come. My thanks to Forbes, McKinsey, National Minority Supplier Development Council, the USDA, respective brand websites, and of course, Spins for the data highlighted in this segment. Make sure to thank a farmer, and as always, we'll see you at the show. Ah, another great Jim Olson segment. I love how he used data from not just the SPINS database, maybe for the first time in the buyer's desk mm, history. Right? I also, I mean, and I just going to keep using the word expansive with this episode, right? Jim hits us with some history, gives us a, a great look at a farm that we're going to circle back to later on in this episode. Um, a very cool new product. And then again, that story of the the young farmer from Georgia, which I just, I feel like now I'm rooting for her too, Jim. Thank you. Oh, totally. And what, you know, one thing that Jim called out too, the, you know, him being the data, the data guy, that it's only the the 1.4% of farmers in America are black farmers. And quick, easy Google search, even just looking from the Black Farmers Network, looking at the Organic Trade Association can connect people to even organic produce farmers that are black farmers in your area to find and search out and get produce from. So there's resources out there. Google is a, a wonderful resource. 
I think that's great. I actually think that it's cool that he gave some references at the end of his interview as well, just to like sweeten the pot in terms of other like good places to go and look for for information. Yeah. And and I love that he called out the Evo Ham and uh, Angela Dawson at 40 Acre Co-op because next up is my conversation. And I co-interviewed with Kim Rout, our executive producer and category manager here on the import purchasing team. Kim and I had a conversation with Angela Dawson of 40 Acre Co-op. And we talk about her experience as a farmer and how her and her team are working to make a positive change in the egg space for black farmers. But first, we're going to hear from Ari at Evo Hemp. Obviously, we know a brand that collaborates with Angela and the 40 Acre Co-op, and they use the co-op's hemp biomass in their hemp products, which is fascinating. Hey, savvy snackers, get ready to elevate your snacking game with Evo Hemp, the brand that's not just about delicious treats, but about making a difference. Did you know that when you reach for an Evo Hemp snack, you're supporting a movement of empowerment? We're proud to collaborate with the 40 Acre Co-op, a black and indigenous farming co-op right here in the United States, ensuring that every bite you take has a positive impact. By partnering with BIPOC farmers, we are fostering economic growth, preserving regenerative farming practices, and creating a sustainable future. Evo Hemp, your all-in-one wellness solution. Indulge in our tasty nutrition bars, power up with nutrient-rich hemp hearts, fuel your fitness with protein powder, and find balance with our premium cannabinoid product. Taste the goodness, nourish your body, find your balance. Learn more about the big benefits of the little hemp seed at evohemp.com. Hey folks, Kim Rout is here with me today. Hi everyone. And we're going to chat with Angela Dawson, the founder and president of 40 Acre Farm Cooperative. Hey Angela, thanks for being on the buyer's desk. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're glad for you to be here. So I I think to kick things off, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself, your journey with farming, maybe why you started 40 Acre Co-op and then dive into uh, why the co-op model is so important for your vision for 40 Acre Co-op? Certainly. And, you know, I love to talk about cooperatives and I'm not sure where everyone in the listening audience is from, but Minnesota is a real home base for cooperatives across the country. And it's where I really got a lot of my training to understand the different kinds of co-ops, what they can do, how they can address community needs and people's needs. But my story basically, you know, started the way I tell people is that I didn't choose to be a farmer, but farming chose me. Because I was actually on my way to be an attorney for uh, a large institution in the state of Minnesota. I was just happily on my path, I thought, to becoming a corporate uh, lawyer, even though it was something that was sort of paved for me. I don't feel like it wasn't something that I was choosing to do, but it was just something that I thought that I needed to do in order to be considered successful. And so I took a sabbatical as I was trying to really figure out some aspects of my future. And if I really did want to commit to this three-year law school term and all the debt that came along with it. So during the summer, I went out west and I stayed on a farm. And that's where I saw a lot of activity around the hemp space. I stayed on a hemp farm. There were folks that were growing hemp and cannabis at the time, and it really changed the trajectory of my life. Now, I would also say that when farming chose me, that's also the time that I discovered 
that I was a fourth generation farmer on my father's side and that there was a lot about that story that needed to be told and a lot of it that also needed to be healed. And so when I say that farming chose me, I have come to find out that I was the one that was chosen to address the story of my family's farming legacy. That is amazing. It's interesting how as you grow and you think that you're going to go one path and then something totally changes. Like I never thought I'd be in grocery retail and here I am. So what makes farming significant for historically marginalized groups, given the historic and current barriers that the Black farmers face? What are the ways that 40 Acres Co-op seeks to empower people? So, you know, once I became a full-time farmer, I didn't even realize the amount of historical baggage that I was taking up. And at first, you know, I coming from an academia perspective and most of my career at a university, I had applied for federal grants. I've written federal grants. I write business plans. That was a part of my job is writing business plans for medical school physicians and getting their their proposals through uh, all the bureaucratic processes. And so when it was time for me to become a full-time farmer and I applied at my local county USDA office, I had taken it as just kind of like an application process that I had done before. But little did I know that I would come face to face with those historical barriers that Black farmers have faced for many generations. And, you know, I talk about it now and because I've processed it myself, but it was a quite a traumatic experience at the time when I was dealing with a person who really didn't have any respect for Black farmers, didn't think that I should be farming. And I didn't think that that was something that was still, you know, the way that this person acted with so much agency and the way that they treated me when I asked about getting a, a $50,000 microloan to help support my farming enterprise that was I was getting a contract and I needed to make some updates to my farm. And and the exchange that I had that day just really changed everything for me. But it also, you know, changed the USDA, to be quite frank. I mean, that experience has changed a lot about the conversations that we're all having today when it comes to black farmers. And so I was expecting that, you know, I'd go through the process and I'd get the grant just like I've gotten many other grants before. Uh, but this one actually wasn't a grant. It was a loan and it was and it required a business plan. But it really highlighted for me that there was a lot to still be addressed in the USDA when it comes to black farmers. And so that's how the 40 Acre Co-op was actually born. It's where I really leaned on not only my own sort of historical and ancestral lineage when it comes to farming, but I also leaned on my own uh, engagement within the co-op sector and my own education around really pulling on the co-op model and using it for a real important issue that I didn't know that I was ever going to have to employ. And I mean, I'm just so thankful for the experiences that I've had with co-ops and all the grocers. Like I, I worked with a lot of produce departments and I worked even on the retail front end side when I was doing demos. I was the, I was the food demo lady at the co-op and all of those experiences is what I eventually needed to pull on in order to address my own personal farming dream. And it's just something that 
I didn't know that it could be used in such a flexible way. And I'm just so grateful that we have uh, these kind of models where we can share that are duplicable and, and flexible enough to apply to all kinds of different situations. I do have just a follow-up question. So you talked about going through all of the things to get to where you are now. Do you find that in farming that gender roles also may play a factor in maybe it being harder for a Black woman trying to get out there and farm and, and be part of the community? You know, that's a good point, Kim, because one of the things that that she made really clear to me was that not only was I Black and my organic farming plan was something she'd never seen before, but why don't I have a man on my application? Like she's never seen a woman lead an application. A woman has usually been like a supportive co-applicant. And so we had quite the conversation about that. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. And so I definitely think both of them and, you know, ever since I've started 40 Acre Co-op, I get lots of calls from farmers in the region. And I have talked to plenty of women farmers, too, who, you know, I think one of the issues, the main issues with uh, the, the way that the USDA is structured is that the decisions are made at a local county level. And so um, and these county folks have the power to decide the survival of any farm in their area. And whether that person has the appropriate equity training, civil rights training, diversity, discrimination training is an obvious gap that I found out. But I also learned from other folks in the region, like there was a woman that just her local county USDA person did not want to allow her farm to survive. He couldn't believe that she bought 79 acres, first of all. And he told her that is way too much for her to try to manage. And she would try to apply for small little programs that were that were available for all farmers in her area. And she would constantly get denied. And so I know that this is an issue. And, you know, what I later found out, and I think it's important, you know, in these platforms, on podcasts and, you know, dealing with uh, journalists that we tell the story that a lot of people don't know because farming is so isolating as it is. And, you know, farmers in general, have one of the highest suicide rates as I think it's equivalent to police officers because of the isolation, the hard work, the lack of support. And so for us to be able to communicate and tell these stories on platforms so people are aware of really what's going on is really important to me. And it's, you know, it's the reason why I keep going at 40 Acre Co-op, because after I do these, I get phone calls or emails from people that tell me their stories and I can find ways or people to connect them with to help them, you know, have a better experience or a better quality of life on their farm. And so I think that uh, us continuing to tell these stories is really important. I agree. And and thank you for helping and being a, a voice for the Black farming community. I think that's very important. I'm just going to pivot to what are some of the ways that you see health sustainable practices and economic empowerment being connected? Well, you know, those things I think are really highlighted and I feel like I can talk about them because of the way that I've been able to employ the co-op model in my work, right? So I noticed that when you have other kinds of uh, business structures, 
or, you know, less flexible when you have these large corporate businesses. You can't be as impactful in those areas that I feel like I've been able to be in the co-op structure. And because we work with a lot of small independent farmers, we're able to be able to change the priorities of our operations. So for example, we have a lot of farmers in our co-op that emphasize sustainable practices on the farm because of the health and safety of farmers. I have a lot of women farmers in our network and we talk a lot about ergonomics and and body health and how the equipment is really like is built around large male bodies. But the, but a lot of us, you know, don't have those frames and so we have to find different ways to make using the farm equipment healthy for us. And so I feel like I'm able to talk about that a lot because, you know, when we focus on sustainable practices, that doesn't, that means the environment and it means the soil and the water, but it also means sustainable for the farmer to be able to live and enjoy the fruits of their labor because I am so against I mean, I love the idea of hard work and the, and the brow with the sweat on it and stuff like that. But I believe that farming should be healthy. It should be enjoyable. It should be fun. It should have like relaxation. Shouldn't be like a luxury that we have to pay thousands and thousands of dollars for. It should be integrated in our lifestyle. And so I love that about farming. It's a really difficult thing sometimes to talk about because people expect for farmers to just work their fingers to the bone. I definitely come from a history of sharecropping in my family, which means that we never got to enjoy the equity of the work. And so I am very adamant about farmers and our co-op having a balance in their life. And yes, we work hard and yes, we carry big, heavy things and we get up before dark and sometimes we're working in the nighttime, but we also take like the month of February off, you know, those kinds of things. I I think that's so important because yeah, it is, it is hard grueling work and to have that uh, time to self-reflect and also enjoy and to like be a part of what you're doing and and be within that and be present with it, I think is so important, right? Because it is a lot of hard work. So I appreciate that you have that network and be able to teach and train people to have that balance. Because that's a, that's a big thing just outside of farming right now is that work-life balance. So to really bring that into the farming model, I think is so important. So I, we really appreciate that that focus and work you're putting into that. To bring this a little bit back to the the retail side. So when we were looking at this episode and you know we work with Evo Hemp, they're doing an ad on this episode that you probably just heard right before this segment. And they talked about 40-acre co-op. And so that had Kim and I looking a little bit more. We came across you and that's how we're having this conversation with you today. So it's it's cool that, you know, we work with Evo Hemp. A lot of our infra members work with Evo Hemp. I'm curious, what other products is your hemp used in? Like how can consumers and infra members connect with your product, um, maybe sell it in their store? And how can we support you uh, as the infra retail membership? Yeah, I mean, shout out to Evo Hemp. I mean, those guys, and they have an incredible story themselves, like the way it was started from like, you know, a mother's commitment to hemp seeds and and bringing in 
something that wasn't really popular during that time. And they just kept at it and continued to improve on their product every year and just have been beating the pavement with getting the product in all the stores. And I'm so excited every time I see it in an independent store. So, but yeah, it's, it's we've had a great partnership with Evo Hemp. And then we also here in the region, in the Midwest region, so far we've been kind of around a couple of different stores. We have some products. We mainly operate in two areas. So we have a strong B2B component of the 40 Acre Co-op. So we grow pounds and pounds, hundreds of pounds of biomass that folks use in beverages. They use in gummies. There's some tinctures uh, that are made with CBD. And then, of course, uh, we're working on a whole other uh, seed and oil project uh, in northern Minnesota. So I want to say one other thing, and that is, is that you know, I feel really close to the Infra members and kind of the whole concept of independent stores because a lot of people in my community have been able to, um, you know, realize their entrepreneurial dreams by having an independent store. And it's where I've gotten a lot of my, my first job was at a small neighborhood independent store. And it's where I got kind of my customer service training is you know, how to deal with customers on the retail level is at an independent store. And so, but I'd love to be able to see my, even 40 acre products. I love to p- provide biomass for customers who are, are creating all different kinds of creative products, right? Like I have folks that are doing gummies and chocolates and different kinds of edibles, but I'm really on the wellness side of uh, the retail experience. And I'm really into creating products that people can apply like creams and balms, and oils that help people's bodies move better because I use my own products a lot, especially on my hip and lower back. And so uh, a lot of our products have really high quality CBD in them. Uh, We take real special care in uh, creating, I've created my own strain of CBD. Uh, We nicknamed her Wonder Woman for right now because she has so many aspects of amazing like qualities like she grows really big and strong. Her stocks are really tight and strong, but she also really can take a lot of different changes in the environment and comes back stronger. Uh, she grows in a real short amount of time, whereas most plants take 90 days. She's about 72 days uh, when she's complete. And so there's all kinds of things that are wonderful about it. So we call her Wonder Woman, but that particular strain I love to see that I get reports all the time of people who use the wellness products and, you know, my back was really, really hurting. And I went through all of these different pharmacy products and then I was like, this one. It, And so um, and I feel like that's Wonder Woman and her healing elements, you know, helping not only the community, but people in their individual lives and helping to alleviate pain. So hopefully there'll be more products I'm on, in conversations right now with an Iowa-based brewing company that is creating a social beverage, and it's a non-alcoholic social beverage that is going to be made with CBD in it. So, and that will be uh, a new product that we'll be rolling out in the spring. That's awesome. I, I love that name of the strain and seeing you light up talking about it. I can just tell how passionate you are about that work and, and what you guys are doing around the product. So that's that's so great. So if info members do want to support you and they want to support 40 Acre Co-op products, can they go to your website? How, how can people support you and get connected? 
Yeah, I think the website is the the first stop. It gives um, some good basic information about the co-op. And uh, there's a email that says, it should say support at 40acre.coop is a good way to reach out. My assistant and I monitor that email account. And yeah, we're always willing to talk about ways to support other small businesses and help create a strong ecosystem between farm to market. And I feel like Infra members and, and independent retailers are really important aspect of that pipeline. Awesome. Cool. Well, you guys heard it here. Where to, where to go? So it, it sounds like throughout your journey, you've learned quite a bit leading up to the co-op model. You've learned a lot about the co-op model and how that's benefited you and the community and, and the network of farmers that you have. But where do you plan to go from here? I know you're reading that you have a, a high level of demand to be in the cooperative. And so what are your plans looking like into the future? And, and how do you look to accommodate for that high level of demand and be able to teach and train some of these farmers in, into the work and be a part of the co-op? Well, you know, it's it, the demand is growing and we I think we're going to find that we need to grow and probably continue with 40 Acres role as a bit of a disruptor. I mean, I really think that it's important for us to continue to disrupt old or oppressive paradigms that have been keeping people separated, uh, especially keeping farmers isolated. And I want to continue to be a resource for farmers who are trying to find that stability and find pathways to sustainability. I think it's really important to stay in that space of being a voice and being a resource for farmers to be able to just kind of onboard into the whole sustainable farming industry. But then in addition to that, like in terms of growing in products, I want to be not only a resource for farmers to get to sustainability, but also a resource and a hub for people to learn about how to farm in a way that is supportive to our environment, to our community, and also to the products that we create for people to consume. And I think that that supply chain and that pipeline still needs a lot of support. And 40 Acre is still going to stay in that space. But, um, you know, in Minnesota, we also have this big thing coming up where They just legalized cannabis. And so I think a report was put out yesterday that uh, the state uh, regulators are estimating that they need 381 dispensary stores. I think we're going to see a lot of uh, more independent retailers coming up. And I definitely want 40 Acre to be like the cultivator of choice for folks who are looking to offer high quality herbal products and hemp and cannabis. And so um, we want to continue to be able to improve our operations. We're looking at expanding our grow facility in northern Minnesota and and plant more acres this year of high quality hemp and cannabis. If it's if we get our license for that, we've been licensed for the last three years in, in the hemp space. But I think we want to grow and expand our our capacity, and we want to be able to serve more people, and we want to be able to pipeline more farmers in a sustainable way. So I'm really excited about the future, not to say that things aren't, that it's not going to be difficult. The environment is really challenging now. There's different things in the climate every year that we're noticing are creating challenges that we hadn't anticipated before, like floods and storms and real extremes that we're not really able to always prepare for. So I know that we're going to have those challenges, both, you know, climate wise and 
probably even socially and politically, right? We're in, I'm in Minnesota and we have a lot of uh, social issues that we're still trying to address in terms of disparities in quality of life. And so I want to continue to be a resource for, you know, solving those issues, but also like, yeah, I like having real high quality herbal products and I want to be able to provide that for my community too. So Angela, what are some amazing experiences that you have been able to experience on your journey? Well, Kim, I mean, to be honest, this this second leg of my career has been like the wildest roller coaster. <laughs> like, you know how some people think like their second career or the, their second wind is going to be kind of like smooth sailing. They're going to be a consultant, you know, have a couple of consultant gigs and then just kind of cruise on into retirement. But I mean, really, I feel like a lot of the highlights I've had in my entire career have happened in the last 18 months <laughs> to 24 months in terms of like the encounters that I've had with amazing people and the journey um, that I've taken in terms of, you know, agriculture and being an advocate for marginalized farmers. And so I think, you know, two real key moments happened recently that really made me think that it's possible that my work is having some impact. And that was um, a session that I had with Al Gore and Dr. John Boyd and Leah Penniman. And it was about, um, and we were talking about climate change and really how uh, equity issues in farming and climate change are connected. And it was such a dynamic conversation. And it was just, it was one of those places where you could, the energy of the room was something that you can tell that there was some real stuff going down. It was really important. <laughs> and not only it was really important, but like the conversation was so rich that you can tell that there was an impact. And so that was a really big deal for me. And I think that that happened on, um, and right not too far after that, I was, I've had a few encounters in Washington, D.C. I'd say Washington, D.C. I went to Washington, D.C. last March and I went to the United States Department of Agriculture building. And I mean, just for me and the story that I have in creating 40 Acre Co-op, I've talked to a lot of black farmers who started this whole entire movement of addressing inequities in agriculture. And one of the things that I learned is that there were some black farmers and they're much older now. Some of them never got a chance to live to see justice for the hardships that they were put through. But I learned, and it was just so interesting when I went to physically see the building that to black farmers, the USDA was called the last plantation of the executive branch. Like that's the relationship that black farmers still feel that they have with the USDA, the last known plantation of the executive branch. And when you read into the history of the USDA, you can understand why they felt that way. All the way from the reason why I named 40 Acre Co-op its name, where it came from, right? It came from the idea that when the slaves were fighting in the Civil War and they were at a point where they were winning the war and the army colonels promised all of the, there was executive order 15 that promised all of 
the enslaved fighters 40 acres and a mule when the war was over. And so as the war was ending, the uh, soldiers were starting to uh, settle in on their 40 acres and a mule. And then obviously Abraham Lincoln was assassinated and his predecessor rolled back all of those promises and started kicking off the soldiers from their 40 acres and they gave it to the Confederate soldiers. And, you know, honestly, I would say that black farmers in particular have been unsettled in their housing ever since. And so um, when I think about the history of kind of the founding of the agricultural system, you know, I think that um, when we talk about Black History Month in particular, I like to think about all of the inventions and the things that were created by uh, formerly enslaved farmers who actually created things like the pull behind plow and the cotton gin and even, you know, refrigerated trucking. Even the CSA model, I learned, was created by a black farmer. So when I um, think about those things, it really provides a strong uh, motivation for me in terms of the kind of legacy that I want to leave in agriculture. And so when I go to those places and I have those experiences, like going to the USDA or, you know, in November, I was invited to a visit that Joe Biden had at a farm here in Minnesota. And it was a, and a fantastic White House event. And it, uh, you know, and it kind of felt like, you know, they set the stage as if we are at the White House and it had all the flags and it had all of the pump and circumstance. I met with all of the people who are decision makers and that was really amazing. But I really truly keep like the original reason and the founding story behind 40 Acre Co-op front of my mind when I'm in those kinds of environments. And I hope that, you know, my presence there will help make a better change for people as we continue our, you know, our legacy in agriculture. That's amazing. And all of your experiences and how you bring it back to, you know, the history of farming and, and marginalization, it tells a bigger picture and, it, and it's a really good education for, for others. So thank you for sharing all of that. I look forward to seeing what 40 Acres does in the years to come. Keep being a disruptor and love to see what the impacts will be. So Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us, Angela. Thank you guys for having me. This was an amazing conversation. You know, I wish the best to Infra and all of its members. And I hope to see, you know, more hemp products in all of the stores and much success to all the operators out there. Oh my gosh, Chris. I just love so much of that interview. Angela, strong woman, Wonder Woman, uh, just felt like her whole story, uh, so many pieces of it, like I'm totally overwhelmed with even where I would want to start. <laughs> I don't know. Actually, can we get the bummer piece out of the way first? Like I had never thought about farming as being isolated, an isolated profession. I had I had never thought about the suicide rates of farmers. And uh, after she said it, it made perfect sense to me. And it was so great to hear her talk about that and then also come back to it a couple of times to say, like, this is why these some of these things are important. This is why the cooperative structure means so much. This is why nobody should be out here doing it alone. Yeah. And I think coming from you know working at a cooperative, 
you know, it is a collaborative space. A co-op brings community together. So for her to not only do this for what she ran into as, as some roadblocks, but to take out that isolation and bring community into farming, I think is, you know, a, a fascinating uh, thing that she's been able to do. Yes. I also have to say that I love her kind of winding retail journey. She calls herself the food demo lady at the co-op. And I just think that any of us that have worked in grocery have either had that role or known that person and kind of know, like, you just know exactly what you mean when someone means or they're like, oh, it's the food demo lady. And you're like, oh, yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I guess there are a couple of other things. I had no idea that a black farmer created the CSA model. And I love that that we I felt like that's so great. I love my CSA. And like, I thought that was this other awesome innovation. And I guess just one other thing I just when I heard it, I had to like sit with it for a minute was just that concept of black farmers feeling like the USDA is the final plantation of the executive branch and what that means in 2024. And just hoping that, you know, maybe Angela could be one of those people we check in with in a couple of years and see see how things are going. She seems like she has got this pulse check on a couple of layers of the industry that all feel like I would love to know what's happening in like 2026. Yeah, I feel with you, even just being in that conversation and and hearing some of the things that, that she's gone through and really having to, to sit with that and, and kind of gain some perspective from that. You know, it was a great conversation. And, you know, I think talking through some of the hardships and some of the things that she's doing to work beyond that and bring people beyond that, I think is fascinating. And then seeing her talk about Wonder Woman and some of the things they're doing and seeing her face light up and talking about how much joy she has doing what she's doing, I think that gave me goosebumps. So I think she, you know, you know, like you said, that that conversation had layers, but I think Angela really brought a really good perspective to the conversation as well that, you know, grounded and rooted in reality, but also, you know, a bright future that that she sees and that she's bringing people along with, which I, I think is fabulous. Another great conversation that that we had on this episode was uh, my conversation with Aloha and Joe Chala, the owner and CEO of Alafia. And we talk about their collaboration with farmer collectives, farmer cooperatives in his hometown of Togo that have made his brand possible. But first, we're going to hear from Kelly at Ecos, a black and woman owned brand that are the leaders in green household cleaning products. Hey, my name is Kelly Blahakis Hanks, president and CEO of Ecos, the leader in green household cleaning products. Our black owned, woman owned company is transforming access to safer and affordable cleaning products. At Ecos, we believe everyone has the right to a safer clean in their home. Our plant-powered laundry detergents and household cleaners are made with cleaner and more sustainable ingredients that are better for the health of people and the planet. And we make all of our cleaning products in our very own climate-positive manufacturing facilities right here in the United States. For over 55 years, our family-owned company has been a pioneer in green cleaning, and today, over 120 Ecos products are Safer Choice certified by the US EPA, the gold standard of ingredient safety. To learn more about Ecos, visit us at ecos.com and find us on social media at Ecos Clean. Hey 
Hey folks, I'd like to welcome Oloo Enjo Chala, the founder and CEO of Alafia to the buyer's desk. Hey Oloo, thanks for chatting with us today. Thank you, thank you, Chris. Uh, I know that it's been a few days since the new year, so happy, happy new year. Blessing to you and your family. Oh, thank you. Blessing to you as well. And happy new year. So to kick things off, I think many folks in the industry are very familiar with you and your brand, Alafia, because you guys have done such a phenomenal job of affecting positive change in your home country of Togo and also telling that story. Um, I've watched a ton of the video you guys have done and they're amazing, some of the work that you guys do. But can you really talk about maybe how your priorities and initiatives have changed or evolved since you founded the brand back in 2003? And what's your biggest immediate priority with Alafia right now? Thank you. Uh, you mentioned 2003, and that makes me feel a little bit old. I'm thinking. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's 20 years some... ago. <laughs> I got That's some, some seniority, I got though. Some, yeah, some great hairs. I don't know that it is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I do too. They just keep coming. Yeah. The, 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 so thank you, Chris, for making me feel old today. That, that's a good thing. Uh, no, that, no, you know, that, first of all, yeah, I said thank you because it's a, it is important to always uh, be reminded why we're here and why I do what I, what, what I do. So the thing, thank you for that. What I was going to say is that I, I don't believe that the priorities have changed over time. The, the convention. And the priority why the establishment and the creation of Alafia it is, is the same today. If, uh, I may even argue is even more critical to maintain the same priorities where you put communities and human first and the earth and, uh, and, and, and sharks that matter earth first. So the priorities certainly have not, have not changed or involved uh, in, 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 in all, all, any way that changes. However, what I can say that, that may have evolved is to gather more communities to participate in this journey that have evolved. Because when you come to realize that something is critical and is needed in the community, you need to find a way to do it in a, in a, in a bigger way, in a way that you can have more capacity. And that means that you have to evolve from just an individual to give more people to, uh, to participate. So I, I think uh, that may be what may have evolved. By term of the key DNA and the reason to be and the goal of 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 Alafia yeah. and for me personally, uh, remain the same. Those are my priorities, and I believe that I will I will die do what what I what I'm doing, which is to serve my community. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I think if if anything that evolves is strengthening and doubling down on the thing that really is is what is important to you. That that you know that's amazing. Thank you, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I guess I, I didn't tell you how that my gray hairs I'm involved though. I, I have if um if somebody were to ask me, would you start Lafia today? I don't know if wise is always a good thing, you know. Uh, because uh, I would be so wise, I would say no, I don't think so. You know, you know, twenty years ago, you're you know you're naive uh, in some ways that you just think that you could change the world overnight. But you don't realize all the punches that you go to take along the way. So I said no. But no, that's a joke. The reality is, uh, it's worth every single one of those gray hairs. And uh, and I, you know, if I have to do it again over and over, uh, I will wish to do that, and and I and I will do so. That's amazing. So I think one thing to key into about your business practices is 
Uh, you guys have gone far beyond the typical fair trade standards. So I'm curious about your thoughts on fair trade and, and where they might be going next. But what I think is more important is what drives these initiatives for you to go beyond those standards? And maybe what's your process for determining goals like this and then achieving them? Yeah, your, your, com- your question is uh, awfully comprehensive in a way that uh, I don't believe we have time to comprehensively answer them. Uh, <laughs> and that's the, the, I, you know, the, the, I want to just make it very clear. The, the fair trade it, it itself is simply not enough to come to even close in resolving the matters we, that we have in our communities, not just in our West African communities, in our communities globally. That is because I personally view the fair trade principles uh, and the standards and the way in which it's applied is uh, it induces kind of a colonial uh, aspect of it, which is essentially quite simple. The West feel a little bit bad about how we treat you, therefore we can have these principles uh, and they can be in a collective and, and then we'll pay you just a little bit more instead of taking the product for free. And, and what I mean by that, nothing wrong with that, but the very fact is that the the guidelines, the principles and the doctrines of the fair trade itself are not written by the communities in, in, these, in, 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 in around the world. Uh, so I think that the community needs to participate in setting up the standards as relevant to their own community, as opposed to have handout standards. I want to be very clear. The, the fair trade, I'll take fair trade over free trade any day. I'm simply making an, an intellectual in, in, uh, argument that is not enough. And and the very fact too, you're intellectual, that's what we see on the ground. So that's not because the product problems are a magnitude. It is a very large problem, but it's still better than nothing. It really is. What we need to do is both the retailers and us who are on the ground, who are the, in the manufacturing, uh, to, to to go beyond, like you said, and to, to insist more, to do more for the community. Because the, so, the premium from the fair trade is, is not enough to truly get the community out of poverty. It simply isn't. And sometimes the community does not even see that. And you have to understand that, that when you have a fair trade certified, typically the, the, the holder of this, that certification is the, 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 the principle that typically is in the U.S. or in Europe. And you have to pay it down as a farmer. And so by the time you finish paying that, and by the time you get the premium and how you agree within the community to invest that premium for the well-being, that it's not it's not straightforward. However, having a fair trade principles does do certain things that I think are very important. That is that it prevents child labor. And that's a big thing to remove from the supply chain. So as yes, the fair trade is not comprehensive. Fair trade is not strong enough to to really impact our communities to reduce the suffering of the people. But the very fact that we have a child labor and child slavery that's been removed from the supply chain through the fair trade certification, I think is something that is good. And we need to do just a little more. No, I, I appreciate that answer because with with brands like yourself or even, you know, some of the the folks in the in the chocolate industry, you know, like Tony's Chocolate Only, trying to go above and beyond and pay more than that premium. I think brands can do that and brands can really push that way to drive that change with some of those certifications. So really appreciate the work that you're doing on that. One thing to talk a little bit more about the the community and those the collectives and the cooperatives you work with, because I think 
it's very interesting how you started working and developing some of these as a part of your philosophy at, at, and mission at Alafia is connecting paths. So I'm curious to know more about how you began to build some of these relationships with the farmers in Togo and what challenges and benefits you've experienced with working both the cooperative and collective farming models, because those models themselves are also slightly different. Definitely. The, the, you know, like all things, take one thing in, in life. That is to build trust. And you cannot build trust just overnight. Trust is not what you say, it's what you do, in my view. So to, for me, I look at the way in which I have engaged, with, I call it our community, because we have a very diverse community. It's first trying to build that trust. And how that, that's done is by remaining consistent on what, what you say you're going to do, to do it. And, and, and most importantly, is also listening to the community. When I say listen to the community, you know, when you, you look at my village, for instance, and then the Kaboli, you go to the next village, it's, it's literally less than eight miles away, completely different language, completely different culture. Yes, both villages are poor, but each of those villages have a different need that are completely different. That is a priority for the, for the village. Maybe one wants water, maybe the, the, the other village just want a bridge so that the children don't, don't die when they, they go to school to cross the, the, the river. Very different, they, they, it's different. So I think for me uh, in building that trust is, uh, is always listening to what does the community want. And, but there's something that's important that when you try to listen, what does the community want? It creates a sense of respect. When you can create a sense of respect, it means that then there will be, because you cannot have trust without respect. And when you respect the acknowledges or acknowledge the community, it doesn't matter how poor the community may be or how difficult the situation may be, but you listen first. What is it that you want the most and how can we do it together? And, and really, how do we maintain that? Uh, is by continuously, if you say you can pay fair wages, we'll talk about fair trade and not be enough, but it is enough to get pay fair wages. If we said, okay, we're going to reinvest in the community and you know all the different community initiatives that we do, we'll continue to invest them and we have done that for 20 years. So over time, the community began to see that the actions are what's speaking for itself and that I was listening to it from the beginning. And there's a great benefit in that because with that benefit, it creates unity and we lack unity in our communities because the poverty will go in different directions. To me, that's a great benefit. I'm not even talking about money benefit or anything. Unity and that, that unity. Now we can have a solution on how do we move forward. But of course, this does not come with our challenges. It comes with extreme amount of challenges, that, as you can imagine. It involves being on the ground. I, I either I'm in stores or I'm boots on the ground all the time. And we, the challenges also, we, we if we look given the poverty issues that we face, we're talking. You know, West Africa is uh, one third of, of the area, you know, is a large area, right? Is a large, is a large area of, it's, it's almost the size of the rest, excuse me. So these are very large area. And that's what I'm trying to say is that you have the, the amount of work that it takes to be in those communities and continuously listening is, uh, is, is a very, very draining. But, I, I, and, and also the various communities that we, we engage with, Given the poverty, there's a tremendous amount of issues of corruption because you cannot blame the people. People are trying to survive it and live today. 
of course, they can behave in a corrupt manners. And to overcome those, you need to have a, a team on the ground. You got to be on the ground yourself and continuously tr- trying to uh, overcome that by by listening and by when it is not when there's a corrupt activity by eliminating them and discuss them and find solutions. But ultimately, it's just continue to create the jobs so that we can overcome those difficulties that that we face. And it is very challenging, I have to say. Yeah, I could imagine there there being challenges, but we do have a one mouth and two ears for a reason, and it sounds like you're using them well. And you're a very thoughtful listener, and I think that those communities probably really appreciate that work that you're doing in listening, gathering that buy-in, and working together. You know, I think I think that's huge. So, well, we have to, we have to, because the the communities for for a long time, particularly when it comes to our gender matters, for a long time we just have not listened, and the reason why. The history uh, showed that way uh, because, you know, if you look, most African countries have been colonized up until 1965. And so it's, these are very, very new, a lot of new countries. And uh, it, it makes it difficult when people don't feel listened to and, they, and they, people don't want to listen to people because they're, they're to take advantage of. So you listen to them when your attention is not to take advantage of. It's, it's very simple. Yeah, that's key. So I, I'm curious about, you know, talking through that lens. What are some of the success stories that you've had with working with the uh, the communities through the cooperative and collectives? And and what maybe are some stories that you can tell from that work that you've been doing over the last 20 years that other brands might find inspiration in for increasing their positive impact and, and working with farmer collectives and cooperatives in, in the community? The, the, thank you. You know, these may be a little bit of a reverse answer. I, I think uh, if we want to look what other manufacturers and vendors can do to impact the community more, especially beyond the fair trade, I really think that it is one of the things that we need to ask each one of us individuals. Why am I doing this? What is it that's driving me personally in, in my soul, in my heart, to want to do this? Uh, those, those are not fair trade issues, they're not organic issues. They're not about market or being rich. Those are, are human issues. And I think that's that's really important. If, if any of us want to expand to really impact the community in which we engage with, and, and, and we, because you could have a good intention in perfect trade and have organic, it doesn't mean that you're serving your own soul and your own heart. You just, because it, because it, it certainly gives you money. So I think I just encourage folks uh, to, to to do that because I think it works for me. Uh, it even helped me during the difficult times to know that, you know, these come from my soul, it's come from my heart, and I'm committed to it until there's no more. And, and you know, and that when we look at if you told me 20 years ago that there will be a child born, that that child be named Alafia, I would say that's not possible. Uh, I remember this was about 12 years ago in an area called Basar. And this, this lady was sitting on the side of the, the road. Her name is Huda. And uh, one of our midwives uh, saw this lady sitting and knew that she was in pain. And she stopped in the motorcycle because we do the side business in the motorcycle in both areas. Uh, and asked her how she, and she said she was in pain. Uh, and she can't walk. And so she put her in the back of her motorcycle and took her back to the nearby clinic. And they examined her, and because she's a midwife, she was allowed. Uh, they, our, our, the, our, our team member, her name is Abide. Abide, Abide, Abide was allowed by the clinic to uh, to examine 
this woman and realized that she has gone to FGM. Uh, and you know where FGM is, it's not a very pleasant thing. And uh, and then quickly they find out that she has a very serious infection, but she's pregnant at, at the time. So they have to take her to a larger clinic, essential hospital, to treat these uh, these uh, these infections that she has. And then months later, she had a baby. And uh, but previously, before she was uh, uh, seen on the south road by Bide, she lost two child because of her infections, and again because of these FGM. And she had, she had her baby, and she named her baby Alatia. And we have many women like that. We can see that, you know, we can think, well, that's a, that's a, a successful story, but it's a really human story. And I think that to me, what, it, what he, he, he really showed me, yes, many women can be paid. Yes, we can build schools. We can do many things in our journey. But the very fact that one human being can be saved and we, we all know there's no way to put a price to a human being. Not We cannot calculate what a human is worth. So I, I think that it's a, not only that it's a story, but it, it is, a, is, a, is a significant thing that I, I'm, I feel every day very grateful that no matter how difficult the children might be uh, to our collective action, not just me, we have team members, we have retailers, we have people like you that would want the world to know the truth about what's going on in the supply chain. Everybody participate. That this is something that we get to celebrate ever so often, that we, we can reduce the pain of the people unnecessarily. It's not this woman's choice to have gone through what she has gone through, but just a few pennies, a few dollars can save her life. And that child today is about 13 years old. Who knows if that child make the world a better place? The world has a lot of issues that we need many people to find, come up with a solution. Oh, I have to sit for that. We'll sit with that for a second. That that's a very impactful story, and I appreciate you sharing that with us. Because yeah, what could that impact on that one person now do? You know, like you said, to, you know, for each of us to really self reflect and look within our soul of what we're doing, you know, from that human perspective, then what impact can this now have on other people, uh, especially that you've touched through starting this business um, and really impacting people's lives, and then turning around and, and impacting others' lives through through the work they do. that I just think that's so beautiful. So again, I appreciate that. So to kind of wrap things up today, Aloha, what are you really excited about right now at Alafia? Can you give us any clues to things that you guys are working on or what retailers can look forward to in, in the coming year? Thank you. I, I, uh, I first say, you know, to all our retailers that are out there, particularly our mom and pop retailers that they're the backbone of Alavia. They, and I would say they have built me. You know, 20 years ago, I was a young man. And if you, across the country, in the Tri-Cities, uh, when I visited, I always uh, felt like I was a home. Each of each of those retailers have opened their arms to me. So I, I just want to take a quick opportunity, really, truly, to wish all, all of you a happy new year. And you know, you have an impact in my life, not just my community, me personally. I've grown as a man. And, and I'm grateful for, for the opportunity that we have been, you know, we have built a foundation that now precisely as we just talked about in, in content to support the communities. And, and, you know, what I'm most excited about is really to continue that journey, to be honest with you. Uh, we have a, a, a new share butter center that we built uh, in Bogatanga. That's in Ghana. You know, 
everybody knows me as a Togolese and from Togo. Uh, but my philosophy, I believe, is uh, are, are, they don't have a limit. There's no boundary or frontiers. It's wherever the humans are, wherever I'm needed. Right? Uh, and to be able to have a, a new center for making shea butter, because I know the impact that it has in Togo for mothers like my mother to be able to have a place to go and work. So to be able to establish a, a, that, a, a place like that in, in a neighboring country is, is something that I'm very excited about. And by next week, we can have everything running and making shea butter. And then in a few months, you can have on your shelves. And so I'm, I'm, I'm excited about that. Yeah, that is exciting. So that's just another point for retailers to really invest in having a Lafayette on the shelf and really working with the customers in the store to help tell the story and relay this information um, so that we can further the work that you're, that you're doing both in Togo and now in Ghana. So that's amazing. So when I asked you to, to be on the buyer's desk and to talk about your story, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you really want to tell our listeners? Well, I, I you know, I, uh, if we're going to do that, we'll be here all, all day. Uh, you know, the Christmas for me is the being a man of gratitude. And I, I, I just want to say that I want to encourage you too, the, the work that you're doing and making sure that many people across the nation can, can hear stories like my story and that we, we can have a better purchasing uh, practices. But honestly, that nothing that I wish to tell our retailers that are beyond the word of gratitude and to remind them that, you know, we talk about reducing poverty, we talk about gender qualities in our communities, especially in West Africa. But they have to also remember that it is them who are making it possible. I, I, I walk in the stores, it's not easy to be on your feet all day. It's not easy to, to be to be in those cold rooms, driving those ice roads. Nothing is not easy. It's said that we have single moms out there. They get up and they go to the store and they walk all day and they got they go home at night and they have to help the kids with their their own ward. So I, I I know none of those are easy. So it's just it's just a, my shout out shout out to all our retailers and uh, that is, that the hard work that they're doing maintain the stores to continue to bring products to the market into the stores that are healthy for our communities that they're the that and and i really wish a blessing here to, to all of them excellent well thank you so much i really appreciate it. it's been great talking with you and getting to know you you're such a humble and genuine caring person i hope to cross paths with you again in the future and i appreciate you being here thank you i'm honored to be here i'm very honored to be here thank you I have a lot of love for Alafia having come up in retail in the Pacific Northwest. I feel like that I've watched that brand go through a number of iterations. And, you know, even if I didn't know a little bit about their evolution, I would have garnered that from that interview. I feel like he does such an amazing job going through so many facets of being a young CPG brand. The challenges doesn't he even tell people that if he had to do it over again, he's not sure that he would. Yeah, yeah, he said it takes some some level of naivety to to start a business to try to change the world overnight, <laughs> right? Yeah, and I just think and there's so many facets that again, you know, speaking of expansive interviews, he touches upon, right? Not only his connection 
to his home, but also, you know, he at some point he does the like, I love retail. Like it's so challenging what grocers do. And it's like, of, of course, you have had all of this interesting insight into retail operations having been on the CPG side for this long. Yeah. And I mean, he's just such an awesome person to talk to. He's so funny. Obviously, you heard him joking about the gray hairs uh, throughout the, that that segment. Um, but he's just so grounded and so uh, humble as well. I think he's very self-reflective and he was just a fantastic person to talk to and just try to gain that knowledge from him of the perspective he's gained throughout the years. It, it was a fantastic interview and can't wait to follow up with him and chat with him more in the future. Agree. I I totally see them continuing to evolve. I like how this episode was sort of earmarked by a we should check in again about some of these stories and like continue to hear these voices. But also, Alafia is a fantastic segue into next month's theme. Next episode, we'll be highlighting the wellness department. And we'll be hearing from members and brands with their wellness predictions for the rest of 2024. As we wrap up this episode of The Buyer's Desk, we'd like to extend our heartfelt thanks to the incredible infra staff contributors, dedicated independent retailers, and visionary natural food brands and business partners that made this episode possible. Stay tuned for more inspiring insights and stories in the world of natural food retail. Until next time, thank you for your support. Angela Bozo, co-host and administrator. Chris Sorensen, co-host and producer. Kim Rout, executive producer and segment contributor. Jim Olson, SPINS segment manager. Austin Hinkle, audio engineer. Lauren Bartel, brand planner and segment contributor. Matt Olson, produce aficionado and segment contributor. Madeline Ware, marketing writer, editor, and digital manager. Haley Craig, outreach manager. Brandon Kittredge, trade show interviewer. Jesse Rock, segment contributor.